Our speaker tonight is Anne Goldstein. Originally from Maplewood, New Jersey, Goldstein attended Bennington College in Vermont, where she read ancient Greek and later studied comparative philology at the University College London. She's currently the editor, she's currently an editor at the New Yorker. If she was the one editor, she probably wouldn't have time to be here. <laughs> uh, best known for her translations of Ella Ferrante's Neapolitan Quartet. Goldstein has also translated works by Primo Levi, Pierre Paolo Pasolini, uh, and Alessandro Baracca, Baracco. She has been the recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship and awards from the Italian Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and also the American Academy Arts and Letters. Her translation for Ella Ferrante's A Story of the Lost Child was shortlisted for the Man Booker International Prize. This evening, Goldstein will offer audience members a peek into the complex considerations of translators with analysis of two translated sentences from Primo Levi's The Truce. If you're interested in these volumes, we have them out back and it's um, in the ballroom, and it's 3,000 pages, the, the work that she did as an editor. Please join me in giving a warm welcome to Anne Goldstein. Wait a second. Now this fell off. I won't be happy about this. Wait, do I have this right? Is this right? Okay. Anyway, thank you all for coming. Oh, wait. Now where are my glasses? Okay. Um, yeah, so I'm going to talk about a little bit about um, translation and how it, something about how it comes about, um, and a little bit about my own history as a translator. I began translating almost by accident as a way of studying Italian more closely and intimately from the inside, so to speak. I had been studying Italian for about five years with a group at the New Yorker, and I undertook my first translation on my own as a challenge to myself, as a kind of exercise. It quickly became something more than that. The work fascinated and absorbed me, and then the translation was published. Entitled Chekhov in Sandrio, it was a kind of memoir reflection by Aldo Buzzi, a little-known writer who had trained as an architect and worked for many years in the Italian film industry. Um, so I came to translation by this somewhat informal route, rather than by formal academic study of the language and the literature, or through day-to-day -day life in Italy. And since that first translation, I've translated a wide variety of Italian writers, some famous and some, like Buzzi, not well known even to Italians. When I start a translation, I usually make a fairly rapid first draft of the whole book. Often at this stage, I put in several alternatives for a word or phrase, but I always leave the literal translation, even if I'm almost certain that I'll change it in the end. I look up words in the dictionary, or rather dictionaries, even words I know, because I always find nuances or synonyms that might turn out to be useful when I make a final choice. At this stage, though, I don't spend a lot of time or effort refining thoughts or ideas or trying to figure out passages that are tricky or that I have doubts or questions about. I usually make a list of problematic words and expressions. In the second draft, I try to solve most of the bigger problems of meaning and sense but there will unquestionably be many word choices and refinements still to be made. 
although I work on the computer, at a certain point I print out the I print out the draft after maybe after the second or third draft. I print out the manuscript and read it on paper. Because you always see things on paper that you might not see on the screen. Awkward or unintended repetitions, for example, punctuation tangles, uh, other kinds of rough places. As I said, I use several dictionaries of various types. Italian-English, Italian-Italian, English, dictionaries of slang, of idiomatic expressions, synonym dictionaries in both languages, and so on. In the case of Pierpaolo Pasolini's Street Kids, which is full of Roman dialect, I had a Romanesco Italian dictionary. And the Italian novel itself has a Romanesco Italian glossary. In addition, the internet is an amazing resource, it's on, and it's constantly expanding. You can find all kinds of useful information, such as maps, specialized dictionaries like Romanesco or Piedmontese or Neapolitan, etymological or historical vocabularies, botanical and zoological information, the components of the type of shutter that rolls down over a shop, the parts of a lock, which are not exactly the same in the two languages, and also somewhat technical. Um, in Elena Ferrante's The Days of Abandonment, which some of you might remember, there's a scene of locksmiths changing the locks on the protagonist Olga's door. There are panel, quote, panels, clamps, plates, latches, and bolts. In Italian, piastre, staffe, bocchette, notolini, e stanghette. When I was translating Primo Levi, who was a chemist, I was able to find on the internet the equipment used in a chemistry lab, including pictures. At the end of the story of a new name, the second of Ferrante's Neapolitan novels, there's a scene in a sausage factory, and I was able to find out certain details of sausage making. So there's, <laughs> it's a great resource. And, and as I say, it's constantly expanding from when I started. Um, and of course, I consult native Italian speakers who don't necessarily agree with one another. And in the case of dialect, don't necessarily know the dialect of a region of Italy that's not their own. After all the drafts, after the struggle to arrive at the right word, I think it's important to return to the original text, to be sure of not having strayed too far, and to be sure as well of having understood the meaning not only of the words, but of the entire passage, of the words in their context, of the word in the phrase, in the sentence, in the paragraph. In the case of Primo Levi, I had to be attentive not to be led astray by the necessary focus on the exactness of particular words. In the case of a writer like the Florentine journalist and novelist Romano Bilenki, whose sentences are almost Jamesian in their complexity and length, one has to be careful to maintain the meaning, and as far as possible the style, while creating an English structure. The language of Elena Ferrante is very dense, and it can be hard to preserve the intensity of emotion created by the rush of words within an English syntax and without losing the meaning. Many readers have pointed out her tendency to write in run-on sentences, which, it <laughs> which Italian sustains more easily than English. Here, in one sentence, she is capturing the character not only of her schoolmate Alfonso, but of his brother Stefano, now engaged to Lila. I'm not identifying these characters, because I'm assuming the majority of people are somewhat familiar. Um, although his features were very similar to Stefano's, the same eyes, same nose, same mouth, although his body, as he grew, was taking the same form, the large head, legs slightly short in relation to the torso, although in his gaze and in his gestures he manifested the same mildness, I felt in him a total absence of the determination that was concealed in every cell of Stefano's body, and that in the end, I thought, 
reduced his courtesy to a sort of hiding place from which to jump out unexpectedly. One of the ways in which the translator is able to convey style so that his or her translations of Primo Levi do not sound like his or her translations of Elena Ferrante or, or Romano Bilenki or Alessandro Barrico, to take a very different writer, is, I think, precisely that attentiveness to the original text. And now I'm going to read a few examples of different writers, um, which are going to tell you their different, show their different styles. Um, this is um, from a book called Mr. Gwynn by Alessandro Barrico, which was published in English in 2012. She went to Jasper Gwynn's studio on the underground, but she always got out one stop earlier to walk a little before going in. On the street, she turned the key over and over in her hand, and that was her way of starting work. And this is from the novel I mentioned earlier, Street Kids by Pierpaolo Pasolini, which was published in 1955. Um, Pasolini is better known, or maybe only known here as a filmmaker, but in fact, he's also a poet and quite a wonderful novelist, especially if you like Rome. Um, Ricetto felt annoying inside, right in the middle, and, and decided to skip out on the mall. He left through the empty church, but at the door he ran into his godfather, who said, Hey, where are you going? Home, said Ricetto. I'm hungry. You're coming to my house, you bastard, his godfather shouted after him. There's the lunch. But Ricetto paid no attention and ran off over the sun-baked asphalt. All Rome was a single roar. Only up on the hill was their silence, but it was charged like a mine. And here's Primo Levi. This is from the chapter Argon in the Periodic Table, published in 1975. From the little I know of my forebears, they resemble these gases. They were not all physically inert, because that was not granted to them. Rather, they were, or had to be, fairly active in order to earn a living and because of a dominant morality, according to which, if you don't work, you don't eat. But inert they undoubtedly were in their depths, inclined to disinterested speculation, witty conversation, elegant, pedantic, and gratuitous discussion. And finally, here's Jhumpa Lahiri, who, um, as you may know, wrote a book about learning Italian called In Other Words. I realize that in spite of the limitations, the horizon is boundless. Reading in another language implies a perpetual state of growth, possibility. I know that my work as a reader, as an apprentice of the language, will never end. There are general difficulties in translating from Italian into English. For one thing, English has no genders, no masculine and, masculine and feminine, and so a modifier has to stay close to its noun. This means that English syntax is less flexible than Italian, and the English sentence can't always follow the Italian structure. Someone once criticized a sentence I had translated because it didn't end on the same word as the Italian, and therefore a particular, a particular emphasis was lost, but doing so would have produced an English sentence that to me seemed tortured. For example, well, I guess this was a sentence. In Italian, it's completely natural to write, literally, the slowness with which would rise to the surface some sort of truth, thus ending on the important word, truth. You might come up with a less literal English solution, but it would likely involve a betrayal of some other element of the sentence. And you may be familiar with the Italian expression, traduttore, traditore, implying that the translator is a betrayer. The translator is constantly having to balance the requirements of emphasis and style with the requirements of his own language. As in the previous example, in Italian, the verb often precedes the subject and can be followed by numerous and complex subjects, whereas in English, the subject generally comes first. In addition, the verb form alone indicates both number and person. Verbs, and they not only indicate person, number and person, but contain the personal pronoun. 
So, for example, in the sentence, vengo e va, I, means I come and he or she goes, but there's only two words, I mean two verbs, I mean two, three words rather than five. Um, in a children's book I translated recently uh, by Ferrante, there are a number of objects that are characters, the big rake, fire, the wave. In Italian, when these characters act or speak, they don't need pronouns. The reader is free to imagine them, imagine them as she or he or it. For, for instance, in Italian, referring to the fire, we read simply scoppietta, it, he, she sputters. In the end, I decided to use personal pronouns rather than it, even though in a sense it makes the personhood of the object characters more emphatic. Italian also has the often used and very useful impersonal construction. Si tratta, si dice. It's a matter of, one says, and so on. Which in English can become ponderous and pedantic sounding. And like many other languages, Italian has a formal and an informal you, both singular and plural. Uh, Italian words can take on shades of meaning with the addition of suffixes, such as isimo, one, ella, ina. For example, a person who is allegro, cheerful, can become allegrissimo, very cheerful. Spesso, spessissimo, often, very often. The word strada, street, can be modified to become a stradina, a small street, or a stradone, a big street. In two consecutive sentences in Ferrante, we find benissimo, eccitatissime, and nerissima. Whereas in Italian, there's a kind of light emphasis in each word that moves the sentences along. If in English you repeated very or some other intensifying adverb every, every time, the effect would be leaden. Another practical difficulty faced by the translator is references and allusions that would be immediately understood by a reader in the original language. There are various types, literary, cultural, historical, geographical, and various solutions. You can add a footnote or endnote, try to explain by means of the translation, or not explain at all, leaving it to the reader. Um, one of the main categories of reference is, of course, literary. In the case of Primo Levi, the most important literary reference is surely Dante. Sometimes, naturally, Levi himself signals the reference, as in the Canto of Ulysses chapter of If This Is a Man, which is essentially made up of quotations from Canto 26 of the Inferno. At other times, however, he quotes Dante without saying that he's quoting Dante, and the reader has to understand on his own. At the end of the first chapter of If This Is a Man, Levi writes, Guai a voi, anime prave. Woe unto you, wicked souls, which is a reference to Canto Three of the Inferno. Here I decided to add a footnote. Sometimes an explanation can be included in the translation, especially when it comes to literary or historical figures. Where Levy can refer to Agnolo Beolco without identifying him, we added the Renaissance playwright Agnolo Beolco. In Jumpa Lahiri's In Other Words, she writes, Moravia's La Chocharia, and we changed it to Alberto Moravia's novel, La Chocharia, uh, then with the translation to women. In this context, I think neither of these interferes. Another category includes historical facts that need to be explained. For example, the American reader probably wouldn't know the significance of September 8, 1943, the date Italy surrendered to the Allies and the Germans took possession of northern and central Italy. There are several reference, references to this date in Levy's works. In one place, the author himself explains. In another, I added a footnote. In Ferrante's Neapolitan novels, which cover decades of Italian history, 
There are references to the Red Brigades, the kidnapping of Prime Minister Aldo Moro, the MSA or, or Italian, MSI or the Italian Social Movement Party. In a novel, it generally seems better to try to get around using a footnote. The first two examples I thought could stand on their own. In the case of the MSI, I added the word neo-fascist. So it said the, the neo-fascist Italian Social Movement Party. In an unusual reversal, Alessandro Piperno's 2000 novel, 2005 novel, The Worst Intentions, has references to Jewish rights that in the original have footnotes, but in English didn't need them. Then there are geographical and topographical details, such as the Valentino Park in Turin, which appears in Ferrante's The Days of Abandonment, and also in Primo Levi. Piazza Vittorio in Rome, in the book, a book called The Clash of Civilizations over an elevator in Piazza Vittorio. Can you talk a little louder? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Um, where was I? Okay, but uh, it's a book by an Algerian Italian writer called Amaro Lacus. The various beaches and villages on the island of Ischia in Ferrante's My Brilliant Friend and the Story of a New Name, and the many streets and neighborhoods of Naples mentioned throughout the Neapolitan novels. In the story of the lost daughter, the fourth of the Neapolitan novels, there's a section in which Elena's daughter recites the history of certain places in Naples. For the translator, it's helpful to have a picture of what the writer is describing or referring to because the dictionary, that is pure vocabulary, doesn't always provide the right word. And even if you don't use the details of a place in the translation, it's good to have an idea, an image that gives some knowledge of what the place may represent. To return to the stradone or big street. In the Neapolitan novels, there is a stradone that is an important part of the neighborhood where much of the story takes place. After considering big street, large street, wide street, avenue, boulevard, and so on, I decided to define the stradone at the first mention and then to leave the word in Italian. None of my other solutions seemed to have the right tone, or I thought they would have become clumsy. Contrarily, the word rione, neighborhood, which also represents an important place and symbol in these novels, I did translate into the perhaps slightly less specific English neighborhood. One fairly common category of references is those having to do with school. The Italian grading system uses numbers rather than letters, but instead of translating them into R, A, B, C, and so forth, I've usually preferred to be descriptive, as in a poor grade, a high grade, when Levy writes, Primo Levi received a degree in chemistry con 110 e lode, literally 110 and praise. There is no need to explain to an Italian that this is a top grade. Possible English versions might be a first class degree, chemistry degree with top honors, degree magna cum laude. The final version reads degree in chemistry with honors. I've usually preferred this, but not always. In the Neapolitan novels, especially My Brilliant Friend, where school marks play a large role, I solved the problem a different way. I decided to leave the one to 10 grading system of the Italian. At the first mention of grades, where Elena tells us her and Leela's final elementary school marks, she says, I passed with all tens. Here I added the words, the highest marks, which I don't think is intrusive. And when grades come up again, as they do frequently in this volume, the reader has a context. These examples point to a more general question of tone and style. 
The translator is verbally conveying a text from one language to another, but he is not, or in my view shouldn't be, trying to create something equivalent. That is, Ferrante's novels are set in a particular place and at a particular time, and for the child Lenou to say that on her report card she got all A's would jar the reader out of the place and time, out of the reality of the novel. A perhaps exaggerated example of equivalency might be to translate an Italian dialect into a regional American dialect or accent, a southern accent, for example, or a Brooklyn accent, or 20s gangster slang, as in fact I believe has been done, um, which again it seems to me would be jarring. Ferrante, by the way, does not actually write in the Neapolitan dialect. When she says he or she said in dialect, she goes on in Italian. Pasolini's Street Kids, on the other hand, does have a lot of dialect. Uh, it's Roman dialect. Actually, it's Pasolini's version of Roman dialect. And the most natural solution seemed to me to be to use a looser, more slangy English. Um, I was once asked if there were passage, passages where you need to be creative because the Italian idiom doesn't easily translate into English. And my answer is that I try very hard not to be. Um, naturally, there are situations where you have to depart from the text, but my aim is not to go too far, to remain within the limits of faithfulness. In an essay on translation, Primo Levi, who made a number of translations into Italian from German, enumerates some of the pitfalls in transferring a text from one language to another. Idiomatic phrases, local terms, false friends, as in word li words like abusivo, which means illegal, not abusive. He points out that it's not enough simply to avoid the traps, that the translator's most effective weapon is a linguistic sensibility. In a note to his translation of Kafka's The Trial, he said that he had tried to find a middle course between a propensity quote, to smooth what was rough, that is, retelling the story in a language that has nothing to do with the original, and offering a line-for-line, word-for-word transcription. He writes, I made a determined effort to balance faith faithfulness to the text with the flow of expression. So far, I've tried to indicate some of the difficulties of translating in general and some of the difficulties of translating Italian in particular. In order to illustrate in detail the process, I've chosen a passage, or rather two sentences, from the beginning of Primo Levi's The Truce. Among the specific difficulties of translating Levi is the sentence structure, which can be complex, but at the, t but at the same time has a compactness and a precision. The science, including not just technical terms, but descriptions of intricate biological, chem chemical, or engineering processes or operations. Many words that are not necessarily scientific or technological, but which are unusual or even made up. And the essays that are specifically about words or language. The passage here, while not scientific or technical, will, I hope, illuminate what goes into the translator's work. Um, OK, wait. Oh. <laughs> the truth. The truce is the story of Levy's long and roundabout journey home from Auschwitz, to which he had been deported in February 1944. In the first days of January 1945, the Germans, under pressure from the approaching Red Army, abandoned the concentration camps. At, Aus at Auschwitz, all the, all the healthy prisoners were evacuated. The sick, including Levy, were left to themselves. The first Russian patrol came in view of the camp around midday on January 27, 1945. That is the scene described in this passage. Erano quattro giovani soldati a cavallo, 
che procedevano guardinghi coi mitragliatori imbracciati lungo la strada che limitava il campo. The first version of the translation is fairly literal, almost word for word. They were four young soldiers on horseback who proceeded warily with machine guns under their arms along the road that bounded the camp. Although the two sentences, Italian and English, are about the same length, the Italian is smoother and more compact, at least partly because there is no pronoun they and because there are two relative clauses, who preceded and that bounded in English, which creates an, well, which creates an awkward structure in English. A third reason may be that imbracciati captures in a single, single word what in English requires three, under their arms. The second version. Whoops. Here. <laughs> oh okay, wait a second. Oh, I see. Okay. Four young soldiers on horseback proceeded warily, machine guns under their arms, along the road that followed the perimeter of the camp. In this version, the first verb is gone, and the relative clause has become the main clause, which elim eliminates the awkward, inelegant they were. With the disappearance of the relative clause, the sentence becomes smoother. Also, the ugly preposition with before machine guns has been eliminated. With is one of many small words that can encumber a sentence. Sometimes they're necessary, obviously, but it's useful when they can be eliminated. Oops. Then I changed bounded into followed the perimeter of. I'm not sure how I arrived at that, and generally I don't like to use more words than levy. But in this case, the need for that specificity of meaning seemed more urgent. In the next, oh, is that it? Yeah. Is that three? Yeah. Um, sorry. And for now, final version, the main verb and its accompanying adverb has been shifted to follow machine guns because in English it's usually more natural not to divide the elements that go together, that is, the verb and its other modifier, the adverbial phrase along the road. So four young soldiers on horseback, machine guns under their arms, proceeded warily along the road that followed the perimeter of the camp. The next sentence. Quando giunsero ai reticolati, sostarono a guardare, scambiandosi parole brevi e timide, e volgendo sguardo legati da unos, uno strano imbarazzo sui cadaveri scomposti, sulle baracche sconquassate, e su noi pochi vivi. The first version, again literal. When they reached the fences, they paused to look around, exchanging brief and timid words and turning looks, and here I use the, my system of slashes where I put some choices up there. Bound, made awkward by a strange embarrassment on the decomposed bodies or corpses, on the ruined or wrecked barracks, and on us few living. Again, the first version is literal and includes in italics some alternatives and different possibilities. In the second version, some decisions have been made and new choices added. When they reached the fences, they paused to look, exchanging brief, timid words, and turning their gazes, checked or restrained by a strange embarrassment on the, and I add the Italian word, decomposed or messy pile of corpses on the ruined barracks and on us few living beings. The adverb around has been eliminated as unnecessary, and it clogs the sentence. English often requires an adverb, whereas in Italian it's contained in the verb, for example, the verbs in Italian, guardare, chiedere, capovolgere, look at, ask for, turn upside down. It's all in there in one package. Uh, looks becomes gazes to avoid the repetition of look and looks. And because gazes is more formal, suitable for the solemn moment. And i vivi, the living, 
becomes living beings. In Italian, adjectives and participles easily lend themselves to becoming nouns or function as nouns without the need for adding a true noun. Whereas in English, especially when there's also a modifier, a noun is necessary. For example, the term i vecchi del campo, literally the old of the camp, is often used by Levy, referring to the people who've been in the camp, in the camp for a long time. Uh, it's often used by him. In English, it re requires a noun and is translated variously as the old hands, the old inhabitants, the old prisoners. But whereas the living works all right, I think, in English, the few living is awkward in English. So I added the word beings. Also, given the solemnity of the moment, the additional word beings perhaps gives the sentence more weight. Where there is a choice of words, it means I'm starting with a range of meanings, intending over time and over different drafts to narrow it down. Sometimes the range is quite broad, as in the case of legati, where the first and second versions offer two, two different sets of words, bound and made awkward. Oh, it's not, wait, I don't know. Oh, this is, sorry. Um, well, there were two, there are two sets of words, bound and made awkward. I guess I need this. Oh, no, I don't. Sorry. Anyway, um, checked and restrained. Um, at other times, the choice, sometimes the choice is fairly simple or straightforward, as in the case of cadaveri, bodies or corpses. Rather, it's not the choice, it's not the choice that's simple, but it's narrower. My intention is to eliminate these choices until I arrive at the right word, the word that best conveys the meaning and also fits into the sentence. sentence. From these few examples, which are not long, complex sentences, it's clear that the choice is not always self-evident. The writer, of course, can choose in his language a single word that includes several meanings, connotations, nuances, degrees, or shades of meaning. The translator, on the other hand, has to choose, in fact, decide which meaning or even which set of nuances is most important. It's unlikely that the language into which one is translating has a single word that contains all the meanings of the word in the original text. To return to the sentence, in English, finite verbs are generally stronger than participles, so I changed the syntax slightly to avoid the pair of participles exchanging and turning, but also to emphasize what seems to me the important detail of the, sense, of the sentence, what the soldiers arriving at the fences of Auschwitz are looking at, the bodies, the devastation, and the few remaining inhabitants of the place. Thus, turning becomes turned, and at the same time, exchanging brief and timid words becomes with a brief, timid exchange of words. The noun phrase seems more effective and in a certain sense more exact, while the elimination of and shortens it, bringing it closer to Levy's concision. In the choice between ruined and wrecked, I decided on ruined. The Italian word, the past participle sconquassate, contains the idea of an action that has been carried out, a violent action, and the past participle represents the result of that action. We know that the camp was bombed and also burned. Other English possibilities could have been shattered, smashed, or devastated. Both wrecked and ruined contain the idea of the devastated camp, but wrecked barracks seemed ugly because of the two Ks, and also because wrecked has only one syllable. In the end, I chose ruined barracks because to me it sounded better, not only as a term, but in the entire sentence. I haven't mentioned sound specifically, but certainly it is a factor in the use and choice of, of words in a translation of greater or lesser importance depending on the text. 
And perhaps I've insisted too much on the word or sentence that is smooth. Faithfulness can also imply a certain roughness. At this point, I made a third version. Okay, let's see if we got this right now. When they reached the fences, they paused to look, and with a brief, timid exchange of words, turned their gazes, checked by a strange embarrassment, to the, un to the scomposti, unseemly pile of corpses, to the ruined barracks, and to us few living beings. For the word legati, there were two sets of possible definitions, bound, made awkward, and restrained, checked. At the same time, for each of those words, there were many other possibilities, many synonyms to choose from. The word checked conveys the idea of the soldiers who are looking but almost do not want to look, who are restrained by embarrassment, but I can't say exactly how I arrived at it. The role of instinct of the unconscious can't be underestimated in the translator's choices and decisions. When I started making this analysis, I was surprised to discover how big a role it was. Perhaps the most difficult word in these two sentences is scomposti. In the second draft, I put in the Italian to indicate that the translation would need work. It's also a complicated word because of its various meanings. The verb it derives from, scomporre, means to take apart, but also to throw into disorder, to disarrange. Scomposto means in disorder, but also unseemly, obscene. The problem is to decide what meaning is stronger and which should prevail. That is, the translator has to decide, choose, choose, and hence also exclude. In English, the dictionaries offer various possibilities. The cognate is discomposed, or one cognate is discomposed, an adjective used of a person who is not in order. And my first idea was purely physical, though in a slightly different sense. These were corpses, and they were decomposing, or had, de or had decomposed, because they had been lying abandoned there for some time. I rejected this as too literal and probably not true, since it's winter. But as I considered the different meanings of scomposto and thought about the scene, the idea occurred to me of a jumbled pile of bodies, corpses jumbled together. We know that there is a common grave overflowing with bodies. Here I consulted with an Italian levy scholar who noted, scomposto means disordinato, disorderly, disordered. In this case, like a pile of bones and limbs thrown haphazardly on the ground. But there is also an, an underlying implication of obscenity. Posa scomposta is a euphemism for posa oscena, an obscene position. A few lines earlier in this passage, we have read about the common grave into which Levy and his friend Charles have just dumped the body of their dead companion, Somogi. In fact, they dumped him not into the grave, but on the dirty snow, because the grave was full and no other burial could be given. The fact that no burial could be given is already indecent, even obscene. So I tried unseemly with the addition of pile of to underline the idea that that mass of bodies or corpses is obscene. That is this mass, the mass, not the individuals. But here I returned again to the sentence and to the scene. Reflecting on the whole, I began to think that unseemly carried too much emotion, too much moral judgment and that the idea of the bodies in disorder, the jumble of bodies, was stronger. Besides, the idea of obscenity, the moral judgment, is contained in the gazes of the soldiers. In the end, the translated sentence became this. When they reached the fences, they paused to look, and with a brief, timid exchange of words, turned their gazes, checked by a strange embarrassment, to the jumbled corpses, to the ruined barracks, and to us few living beings. Whoops. 
sorry. What did I do? Well, it doesn't matter. Um, Well, sorry. <laughs> it doesn't matter. It's just the next. It's just the two sentences together, so you don't need to hear those. I mean, to see those because I just read them, um, or I can just read them. Four young soldiers on horseback, machine guns under their arms, proceeded warily along the road that followed the perimeter of the camp. When they reached the fences, they paused to look, and with a brief, timid exchange of words, turned their gazes, checked by a strange embarrassment to the jumbled corpses, to the ruined barracks, and to us few living beings. This analysis has been intended to present the process of the translator working on a text. A different translator might have had different ideas, different ways of thinking about a sentence, made different choices. One of the risks of translation is that you can always be second-guessed, not to mention second-guess yourself. Well, yes, especially by yourself. Um, my hope is to have demonstrated what Levy called linguistic sensibility, and that the margin for second guessing is minimal. In an essay on translation, the Italian critic Cesare Garboli wrote, to translate is to be an actor. The same attitude, the same condition of the spirit that leads us institutionally to perform, to create theater, to physically breathe the life of another. The translator begins to put on his makeup. He can, as is permitted in the theater, do everything. He can play, mock, disguise himself. He is alone, he is free. And here he is on stage. He has chosen, who can say why, to create, invent, bring into existence a thing that is already there, already exists, has already been written. To make it exist as it was written and as no one ever imagined it before him, the one who is performing it. Thank you. Thank you.